Hello and welcome to Change the Conversation, a podcast from Dara & Co, featuring frank conversations and fresh perspectives that can help you to connect, communicate and grow. I'm your host, Elaine Burke, Editor-in-Chief of Dara & Co, and our guest today is Chip Summers, a podcaster himself who has been doing five years of the Soberful podcast and also with someone you may know, Spencer Matthews, uh, the Big Fish and Chip podcast, and is himself a successful psychotherapist with a practice in London's Harley Street. So welcome, Chip. It's great to have you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for asking. And in your psychotherapy practice, something that you tend to focus on is the world of addiction. And I kind of wanted to start with uh, what may seem like a simple question, but I don't know is very clear to a lot of people is what's the difference between drinking a lot and enjoying a drink and actually having an addiction? Well, obviously, addiction or a dependency or whatever you want to call it, alcohol dependency, drug dependency, substance misuse, whatever you want to call it, it has a set of sort of uh, criteria that you have to meet. But in sort of, I was thinking about because I, I, I kind of thought that this question might come up and I thought the differences I think between just accept, if, if, if you were to eat a lot of chocolate and be violently sick and kind of think, no, I mean, and you'd spend the day in bed sick, you would probably not eat chocolate the next day. You'd probably think, God, that made me really ill the next day. That doesn't apply with addiction. It doesn't matter how sick you get. It doesn't matter how ill it makes you feel. It doesn't matter how bad it makes you feel. You need, and with certain substances, obviously, there is a withdrawal that kicks in that kind of makes you have to kind of go out and and look for the drug and alcohol particularly excessive alcohol use i think it's when you're starting to display some of the criteria so that you know sort of negative things are happening in your life but you're ignoring them um that uh you're trying endlessly to stop drinking but it's not successful and your world gets narrower and narrower so that you are drinking excessively, but that's practically all you're doing. Your friends drink excessively. You hang around places where you can drink excessively, um, where you are constantly immersed in the world of alcohol. And the idea of withdrawing from that makes you feel very uncomfortable. So I think there are probably plenty of people who nowadays particularly who kind of probably drink too much on a Friday and Saturday night but don't carry it on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. But with a, somebody who's got an addiction, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is, it doesn't matter what hour of the day it is, they will be pursuing that dopamine hit that they think they're going to get from whatever the substance it is that's going to get. So, And I think it's a fine line. And I think often people will hide behind that line and go, well, I just drink a bit too much, you know. But actually... What they're doing is they're, they're displaying addiction. And to me, I suppose the easy thing I've always said is when it costs you more than money, it's an addiction. When it costs you friends, jobs, acquaintances, opportunities, all those, when it costs you more than money, it's time to take a look. 
That's a really good way of putting it, I think. Um, I am one of those people who the analogy actually rings true for me. Uh, When I drink, I do tend to be quite sick. So I have to be very (laughs) careful about what I drink and how I drink. So it's not something that I've personally had an issue with. But obviously, I'm Irish. I'm surrounded by lots of drinkers all the time. Um, And something that I came across recently that resonated with some friends of mine was uh, an Adrian Childs documentary where he kind of looked at his own drinking habits and the conclusion that he came to was that it wasn't addiction that he was dealing with, but he certainly was drinking to excess and maybe a heavy drinker. And he just kind of looked at that in terms of his health. Do you think that there is kind of a spectrum? It's not like, you know, a zero or a one. You're either fully alcohol addicted or you're not. Is there like an in-between space where maybe you could be in it in the danger zone even? Yes, I I, I don't think it's... Uh, um I think there is a sort of, it's, as opposed to a spectrum, I think it's it's a, 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 a pathway that you go on. And there will be a point in that pathway when you have got enough information to go, do you know what, I probably need to do something about this. This is costing me a job. So I've got friends who've told me that I drink too much. And at that point, some people choose to go, sod it, I don't care. I'm just going to follow my path and I'm going to go on down that way. And others who pay attention and try and pull it in a little bit and maybe drink less and maybe try and limit the number of times they go out. But there's definitely a kind of, uh, yeah, as opposed to a broad black and white spectrum where you're either an alcoholic, I think there are times when you have got a choice and you make the what I would consider to be the wrong choice, obviously, and decide to go down a path of continuing to drink despite the evidence being that it's really not good for you and it's costing you a lot of uh, consequences in your life. And obviously there's lots of things that people can become addicted to um, and lots of things that can be quite harmful to have that much of a fixation on. Um, Is it a case that sometimes people who are struggling with one addiction may supplant it with another? Does that happen quite a lot? Uh, yes. I'm a little bit wary of going down the road of, uh, well, if you shop too much, you've got a shopping addiction. And if you do this too much, you've got that yeah. addiction. And I, there was a bit of a, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. And I've been doing this 38 years. So I've seen a whole lot of kind of trends come and go and different approaches come and go. And yeah, I think this swapping of one addiction for another is is very common because particularly if you're talking about um, alcohol or drug addiction, they are incredibly time consuming activities. So when you stop doing them, you are suddenly left with hours and hours of time each day that you don't know what to do with. You knew what to do with them. I'll go out and get drunk or I'll go out and use drugs and I'll go out and, you know, being a drug addict or being somebody with an alcohol, it's, it's, you've got to put some work in. You've got to go and obtain the substances. You've got to make sure you've got your supply in, especially if it's drugs, you've got to know where to get it and all that sort of thing. It takes up a lot of time, plus the drinking or using of it, uh, the being intoxicated or stoned and then recovering from that afterwards. That's a lot of time. So if you suddenly stop doing that, you've got probably seven hours a day with nothing to do. And a lot of people really struggle with that absence of activity. They've had a life that is incredibly emotionally spiky. It's kind of gone from huge highs and lows, and suddenly it's kind of flatlined. And I think a lot of people, in order to stop that flatline, will switch to something else. And the common ones are probably, obviously, people 
who take drugs often switch to alcohol. Uh, that's less so the other way. People who take alcohol don't necessarily always switch to drugs, but there is definitely an alcohol, uh, a drugs to alcohol switch, which is very common. And I've given up drugs, but I'm going to be all right drinking. Um, I think work is a very common one because it's very time consuming, takes up a lot of time and is positive and can be seen by the world as being a positive thing. Look at me, I'm working so hard, I'm, but it can become very, very addictive and very, very, but it fills up a lot of time. Um, other activities that are quite common, people do get involved in a lot of relationships and sexual activity, probably takes up less time, but nevertheless, it can be, you can, you know, you can fill up a lot of time. Because to me, this is the secret of recovery and getting better from any addiction is what do you do with all the time you've got given back? And you can either use that productively or you can sit there thinking, I'm bored. My life used to be exciting. It's not any longer. So I'll go back to where I was. It seems to be so heavily tied up with habit forming. So you have something that maybe is triggering the sense that you want to have a drink or engage in whatever it is that you're trying to avoid and you need to find something else to replace that and hopefully something that can replace that in a more healthy way. Are there steps people can take to try and find something else to fill that space when they feel that need? Mm. Well, I think this answers your question. I hope it does. I have, in all my career, I have never met anybody who once they have given up and you've taken, say you've detoxed them from alcohol or detoxed them from drugs, and they no longer have a drug or alcohol problem, I have never met anybody who was revealed as a perfectly normal functioning member of society. They are always revealed as... Damaged goods sounds a bit... I mean, I would consider myself to have been damaged goods, but there will be a litany of things that they've never looked at. Their childhood issues, trauma, often sexual abuse, very common. There'll be a lot of stuff that using alcohol and drugs was a very useful way of throwing a blanket over those very uncomfortable emotions. And when you give up, you are then going to find, a bit like whack-a-mole, all these emotions coming up and you're not going to know what's coming up or how to deal with them because you've never dealt with them because you've had all these usually trauma of some kind uh definitely what i would consider to be uh i mean i've for some strange reason i have never met a client in 38 years with an, a, a substance or alcohol misuse who did not have an absent father in their life whether emotionally or physically absent i have yet to meet that person and I keep on waiting for them to walk in through my door but they haven't yet in 38 years Ever, and nobody seems to have ever put those two things together except me I don't know why but uh, uh, it's something that so I think that nobody sets out to think oh God, what am I going to do with my life I think I'm going to become a completely hopeless alcoholic or I'm going to become a full-on addict nobody does that but what they do do is <clears throat> they find and they gravitate towards alcohol and drugs, and they find that to begin with, it's like the golden key to life. So, oh my God, all these things that were troubling me, suddenly they've gone away, and I can function, and I can do things, and I'm not weighed down by this burden, this backpack of rocks I've carried around all my life. Suddenly life is lighter, and usually for the first, well, it depends from person to person, but usually for the first two, three years, 
use of alcohol and drugs is absolutely brilliant. It's wonderful. It's you feel better. You feel more sociable. You feel you're not thinking about the past at all. And then it starts to become habitual and progressive. And it always is progressive because your body builds up a tolerance to whatever substance you're putting in it, whether it's alcohol or heroin, your body will gradually build up a, a tolerance for it. So you need to have more and more of it to achieve the same effect. And as that happens, obviously, you're going to begin the starting a spiral downwards of more and more consequences as a result of your drug or alcohol use. And that in itself then leads to using more because the pain of all the things that you've done starts to weigh down even heavier. And by the time you're getting towards the end of your career or whatever it is we want to call it, you've got a backpack of trauma and damage and and a history of shame and guilt and all these things that make the idea of stopping using quite scary because you've got a sort of sense that if I stop using this substance that has protected me, I'm going to have to face a lot of things that I don't want to face. And is it quite common that those underlying issues are so underlying that it's it's happening unconsciously, that it's affecting uh, how this person's behaviour has gone down this route? And then when they decide to make a change for whatever reason, they've come to a, a realisation, I, I want to stop drinking, I want to stop doing this thing. Um, and they start unpacking it and it leads down that route. Can that be a shock to people when it start, they start to realise those underlying issues? I think most people have an awareness of it. Um, they may, I mean, I've got a history of uh, childhood sexual abuse um, from both m members of my family and also at school. I went to a boarding school. Um, and so I was aware that that had happened, but I had buried it pretty deeply. And uh, although when I say that, I can now that I've done therapy and I've got sort of learnt all about it, I can see that there would have been a few occasions when maybe the discussion turned to sexual behaviour or something like that. I would start to feel very uncomfortable. I'd probably leave the room. So I think I knew that there was something not right, but it really started, you know, once I started, for instance, when I went into a sort of rehabilitation programme and they said, well, write your life story. And that was a real eye-opener because we don't, when we're drinking and using, we know that these sort of things happen and we they're like bubbles in the air, but they're not in any structured way. And we kind of, oh, yes, I remember that drama there and I remember that drama there and I remember that drama there. But actually, when you have to sort of put it down in chronological order, that's when you can start to see how things, one thing led on to another. And as you're doing that process, your brain will start to access some of the stuff that it's buried over the years. And it, it goes to show why uh, so many people going through a recovery will turn to things like psychotherapy because yes. if they're dealing with those big issues, they will probably need some support. So how does your practice or how does psychotherapy in general help people um, get through those issues? Well, I've always been a psychotherapist, but most of my career, I mean, I've got, as I said, I've been doing it for 38 years for Oh, I can't do the maths now. Um, 28 <laughs> of those, I've run residential re re rehabilitation programs. 
So I've run residential programs with between 20 or 23 beds available um, for people to come in and stay for usually about 10 weeks. Uh, I ran one for seven years, which was a sort of halfway house, which was seven months. Because when you've been misusing substances for anything over 10 years, you are going to really struggle to... You don't just go back into being... Well, you probably never knew how to act socially. You know, you're not going to just sort of suddenly go, OK, great, I'm not drinking any longer. No problem at all. I'll just go to this party and I'll be fine. Because you won't be. You'll be nervous and anxious and you'll be uncomfortable and you'll think that everybody's looking at you and yet you'll think you're a absolutely worthless, a peculiar sort of what I call a sort of megalomaniac slug, where on one hand you think you're the most important person on the wall in, in the room and yet on the other hand you think you're so uncomfortable and unpleasant that nobody's going to talk to you. It's like this peculiar whatever. Um, but yes, I think actually giving up any substance despite what is, is pretty, if it's managed, you know, properly managed in a medical setting, giving up alcohol, for instance, is one of the easiest detoxes in the world. It's seven days, eight days with the correct medication, job done. Heroin, although addicts, and I was an addict primarily, make a dreadful fuss of, of the detox and how awful it is and how painful I'm going to die. You won't die of, of heroin withdrawal, but we all think we're going to. Um, we make a great fuss about it. But if it's managed properly and fine, the, the, the actual getting people off the substance is, I would, you know, easy is a bit of a generalisation, but it's, that's the easy bit. It's how to, it's doable, very doable. With the right medical situation, right medical support, absolutely doable. It's what's left behind. That's what you need to do on. And I think that's the problem that people have is especially if they're kind of stopping and starting on their own at home and they've got no support around them, is that they are suddenly absolutely lost. They don't know. They've got all this stuff that's bubbling up from the past. They don't know how to operate socially. They are very self-conscious and self-aware and they feel very uncomfortable. And if they're doing it on their own, it's very, very difficult. That's why I think anything that has a sort of group supportive element to it, be it um, self-help groups or uh, a rehabilitation program where you might have 20 people there doing th the same sort of thing, where you get people going through the same sort of experience as you, it makes it the, the burden much less and it makes can make the journey actually quite fun. And, uh, you know, when you hear other people have been through the same things as you, have got the same shame as you have, have got the same burdens as you have, when you're sitting in group therapy in a rehabilitation program and, you know, somebody starts talking about something you felt dreadfully ashamed about, bang, suddenly that's lessened and you can oh my god I'm not the only one I'm not the only one who knocked our over ladies in the street and stole their handbags or did what or you know whatever it is that we feel particularly bad about or that we feel particularly uncomfortable about when you hear other people and that's the beauty of things self-help programs and self-help groups it's hearing other people going through your experiences and there are an awful lot of commonalities between people who use substances and those when people hear other people talk about them it really I, I know I've used this expression already but 
it feels like you're carrying a backpack around of rocks and one rock's got sexual trauma written on it and one rock's got family trauma written on it and one rock's got self-esteem written on it and one rock's got something else written on it and you put all those in your backpack it's a heavy load to carry around and obviously what you want to do is put yourself into an environment with a group of other people where you can take a rock out and go okay look i've got a rock here it says sexual trauma and somebody goes oh i've got one of those uh what happened to you what happened to me what did you feel like how did it go what happened and suddenly that rock is nothing like as heavy and you can put it to one side and then you get another rock out and it says family trauma and then you can talk about that and so unpacking all that stuff from your past is that's where the real work is is going to happen getting off alcohol and drugs is under the right circumstances well managed pretty easy it's the it's dealing with the person who's left behind that's most difficult because evidently if you don't tackle that underlying issue it, it you're gonna go back to the yeah. same old patterns i guess uh, yeah. yeah yeah i think so i think you know you might uh, what they call white knuckle it you know you might be able to hang on there kind of just really you know i'm gonna bloody do this i'll show them you know but it's 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 so much easier if you're doing it with the support of other people and that might be a single person it might be a single psychotherapist it might be a single podcast it might be a single friend but somewhere where you can not have to carry the load yourself because it is hard work it's not easy mm. if it was easy everybody would do it and very few people do do it so yeah. uh i get really cross when people say oh well just stop it just just give it up you know i mean really if it was that easy lots of people would do it but it's not an easy thing to do and i think most people can definitely picture the the group therapy idea around this and uh, everyone's very familiar with the kind of acknowledgement being a first step to kind of like identify your addiction and name it and acknowledge that it exists is, is always seen as like that first step in recovery. But I think what most of us wouldn't really know about this is the aftermath of yeah. that. And that's something I found really interesting in reading about your work is that what happens then is you your whole life has changed like the lifestyle that you lived where you could partake in whatever substances it was that you were enjoying um or were actually you know not enjoying at the end of the day uh they have to be taken out and as we said like that can leave a huge chasm and like maybe you end relationships with people yep. over this maybe yep. you have to with like that. leave certain circumstances because of this like that's a lot and i don't think we talk about that enough about people who have to go through that no, we don't. And I think it's uh, sometimes it's, oh, stop whining, just get on with it, you know. But actually, I, I, I've never met anybody coming into recovery who hasn't got a lot of really genuinely difficult things that they need to resolve and sort out. And you're right, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, I mean, I had to lose all my friends because they were all drug addicts so they were not the sort of person people I was going to hang out with and stay well you know it's not um and I think with addicts it is a little it is easier in a way to be more binary about it because you know you can kind of disassociate yourself from that kind of group and still carry on but alcohol is so riddled throughout society it's a much more difficult thing to distance yourself from and uh, because everywhere you go, people will be drinking and people will be asking you, why aren't you drinking? Um, and unlike any other 
give up any... Oh, I've decided to stop smoking. Oh, great. Okay. I've decided to stop drinking poison. Oh, great. Um, but tell them that you've stopped drinking and you've got to explain it and justify that decision. And you've got to... Why? You, why? What was the matter with you? What's the matter with you? It's, and it's usually the people with the drink problem who ask the most questions. But it is extraordinary that when you say... I'm giving up taking a noxious substance that does me no health benefits at all. People ask you, what, why on earth would you want to do that? You mentioned there that it's usually the drinkers who actually pose the most questions. Is there an element there? Is like they don't want that mirror reflected back they on them. Do, if they you had do to change, not. maybe it, I need to change. <laughs> you, they, you're quite right. I mean, definitely. I, I can, if I go, if I was going to walked into a bar or something and said I'm not drinking, this isn't the start of a joke, by the way, if I was walking into a bar. Um, but <laughs> if, you know, if I walked into a bar and said, oh, no, I'm not drinking, the person who's going to ask me the most questions will be the person with the problem because they, you've, you've just thrown down a massive challenge to them because they've probably tried to stop over and over again, which is one of the symptoms of uh, a criteria for diagnosing, you know, you know, is constantly trying to stop. Uh, and you've just said, I've stopped. So you've just really challenged them and they will want to probably try and sabotage your progress because they don't want to be. And I have seen the most unbelievable sabotage go on where um, somebody has felt threatened by somebody else making a decision to get sober and they have gone out of their way to sabotage that. And I mean, I've seen that between mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, fathers and sons, whatever. But I've seen it, people you wouldn't dream of or think that they would sabotage somebody making a healthy decision. But I have seen it over and over again. Just to protect themselves from the spectre of having to go through that process themselves, because yeah. it is, as we said, a scary thing to go through. Yes, or they might be losing their drinking companion. You know, they lose. Uh, that happens a lot in relationships. Um, because if, you know, we, oh, we, so we do, we drink together. You know, probably one of the things that first attracted us to each other was that we both drank the same. And then suddenly one of us stops. Well, that really exposes the other person. And also their playmate has gone. And uh, it's a very difficult one to navigate that. I know some people who've managed it, but it took an awful lot of work in order to do that. But in general, it's, it's very difficult. And because, you know, it's like... I always think, well, you know, with, with alcohol, it's people go, well, you know, it's just drink. Everybody drinks, you know, it's all right. But if you were to change the substances, if I was if said, I, OK, I'm going to give up cocaine and my partner comes home every night and just while they're making the supper, they're racking up lines of cocaine. That's not a good thing for me to live with. That's a very difficult thing for me to have to cope with. Um, and so we go, well, of course, that would be difficult. Well, it's difficult with alcohol as well. And I think, you know, when you're in a, a partnership with somebody who is drinking and you've both been drinking a lot, you really need to have that probably have that discussion before you start the process, because it's going to be an issue um, if the mm. other person is overtly drinking in front of you. It's yeah. And as we've said, like it is alcohol is so wrapped up in our social engagements and uh, it's something like it's very strange, like no one will question you if you only drink a specific type of alcohol or you only yep. drink a specific brand of whiskey. But if you'd rather not drink alcohol, then it's questioned, it's challenged and it's, it's yep. really annoying <laughs> as someone yep. who doesn't always drink on a night out. That, yeah, it's very irritating. Um, but what do you think then of like the zero culture? Does that help or hinder this situation? Because it does enable people to go out and socialise, but you still have to hang it on this framework of 
Yep. Uh, so a, a version of alcohols, a placebo has to be involved. Yeah, I, I, I've gone through a bit of a, I wouldn't say a journey, that's a bit pretentious, but I mean, I've definitely changed my opinion. When it when they first came out, first of all, they weren't zero alcohol. They were they had a, a, a small amount of alcohol in them. So I thought, well, that's you're just you're playing around there a little bit. But now there are really, really good zero alcohol. And I'm, I gather, uh, although I'm sure other types of alcohol are, that the zero Guinness is absolutely incredible. I haven't tried it. I thought used to think it was a disgusting substance, which I know you're not allowed to say in Ireland, but I used that's, to hate that's it. That's fair. Um, <laughs> you're allowed to hate Guinness. That's fine. Um, uh, but I gather that's, I mean, they're getting so good now. Now, if that works for you, great. And one of, I know one of the great benefits that does do is that if you've got a bottle in your hand, the person who's going to ask you 20 questions isn't going to ask you 20 questions because you've got a bottle in your hand. So it serves a fantastic purpose there. You can be one of the crowd, you can be sitting at the bar or standing at the bar doing what you're doing, and nobody's really questioning you. And nowadays, you can get zero alcohol bottles and cocktails all over the place. I personally have a bit of a problem with mocktails i'm not quite sure what that is all about it feels like a a lot of palaver for nothing um uh but i mean some people enjoy doing it and so i would much rather they were drinking that than uh than than drinking alcohol but it definitely has been a very useful boon to some people who struggled to go to parties to go to places and not have drink in their hand and be asked 20 questions so i can see that um and they have got very good and they've got very uh apparent i don't know i mean i've tried i have tried a, um, a zero alcohol wine and i thought it was disgusting and i tried a yeah, zero the wines aren't grease the wines i gather are not very good no it didn't feel like a a sort of petrus to me it felt like something disgusting um and i tried a zero alcohol cider which just like felt like apple juice with about 20 tons of sugar poured in it so i gave it a try and i thought no thanks and and my rather glib response a few years ago was okay you how about if we have some zero opiate heroin how about we do that how about we all sit around jacking up zero alcohol and people went, well that would be stupid wouldn't it and yeah of course you know and because uh, i don't care how you dress it up People drink alcohol for the buzz. I don't care if it's a three-pound bottle of wine or a 300-bottle of pound. You want to end that meal with a bit of a buzz. If you've spent £300 on a bottle of wine and you haven't got a buzz at the end of the meal, you're going to have the head waiter over there going, where's my buzz, man? I just paid 300 <laughs> quid for this. It's And he's going, oh, well, it goes very nicely with the meat, sir. Yeah, but, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, cheaper buzzes are available. Yes, um, But yes. I do think... Um, another kind of trope or commonly accepted um, assumption about alcohol consumption is that it is kind of more framed as a male problem, but it's that's definitely changing. There's lots of statistics out there that's saying alcoholism is increasing among women. And it does seem to be it's nearly getting to a similar level to what it is. It's higher in men, but it, the, the yeah. rate among women does seem to be climbing upwards and probably going to end up in some kind of balance. Do you have any thoughts on what might be driving that? And is it a bit of an under-reported uh, phenomenon in that we kind of still do picture alcoholism as like a men's issue? 
I think it's changing. I mean, I've been, as I said, one of the advantages of having been ancient and working a long time is that when I first started working in a rehab of 40 people, you'd be lucky if eight were women. Um, and historically, there was an enormous, I mean, it might have been going on within the home, but certainly out in public, it was a source of enormous shame for women to be seen to be drunk. It wasn't so much for men. Men could come stumbling home and people might disapprove of it, but it wasn't seen as something to be ashamed of. A woman drunk in the street was something that did create a lot of social disapprobation or whatever. It, it, it just didn't play well. And, and then there was a shift uh, with that kind of ladette drinking where there was... Uh, um, a sort of much more kind of people, women talking much more openly about going out on the lash the night before and uh, making it kind of more acceptable to talk about being drunk. And that was driven, I think, a lot by a younger generation of drinkers, uh, female drinkers. And, and now, I mean, if you haven't gone out and vomited in the middle of Belfast and pissed yourself in the street you haven't really become you haven't got your badge of honor yet i mean nobody cares if you were to be seen in a street corner in belfast nobody's going to say oh that's shocking absolutely they just go oh she's pissed um and that is a real change in how female drinking is 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 uh and why shouldn't they be able to drink as the same as men but there has definitely been uh, much more, uh, uh, and then I think you got a lot of. Once that kind of taboo had been broken, then I think a lot of women who had perhaps, in some cases, been restrained from going out, uh, started drinking at home, started drinking much more, and it is definitely now, uh, probably now, uh, I would say within my practices and my rehabs I've run and my practice. It's about fifty-fifty now, and and it's it's but it's lost that badge of dishonour that you know if, if for a for a woman to be drunk, um, and once that had gone, then I think uh, you know there's no different in terms of kind of metabolism and uh, and physical makeup that should re should not mean that as many people get alcohol it uh, it really takes its toll. On, on women, I think. Uh, uh, I think it, it, it takes its... T I don't know quite why, but it does. And uh, But there's definitely as many female drinkers now as there are male drinkers. And I don't see... That, I mean, I, I don't see the increase in drinking as a good thing by either gender. You know, I, I just... It's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And... Uh, as people become more and more kind of disenchanted and uh, and the op opportunities for kind of pleasure become less and less, I think the... I mean, we drink more now than, than, than ever. And it's presented... I mean, it's, it's a very well-sold product. They don't... They're not stupid, the people who sell alcohol. You know, they sell it very cleverly. You... Know, you everybody's by the swimming pool, everybody's gorgeous or handsome, everybody looks as if they're having the time of their life. Nobody is puking in an alleyway in, in where, wherever it is. 
you know, it's all it's sold very cleverly, and it's a it's a poison. I mean, there is nothing oh. beneficial about alcohol. All that and there's stuff such a high a high level of social acceptance, like you said, even of like binge drinking. Like people yep. don't really balk at it. And like you said, like if someone said, "I'm going to quit smoking." People generally are very positive about that yep. and say that's a great thing to do for your health. But you don't get the same about drinking, even though it can be quite damaging to your health if you're drinking to excess quite frequently. And we have the, especially among women, the whole like wine o'clock um, yep. idea and the stress relief element of it. So it's not just about social drinking. There's also this at home stress relief drinking. Say it's Friday at the end of a long week. I can't yep. wait to have that glass of wine. I'm going to put a post about it on Instagram. Yep. Like that's definitely, I think, feeding into a culture that nearly a advertises drinking without the help of massive campaigns. Like we're advertising it to each other all of the time ourselves. Yes. And I mean, I really need to emphasize there is nothing healthy about alcohol. It is does, the, you know, all that stuff put out by the alcohol industry about, oh, well, it helps with this. It's absolute rubbish. There is nothing beneficial about alcohol consumption. And uh, it is dressed up in a way that is sort of made to look uh thing but we put people forget i mean i, I presume the s limits are pretty much the same in in belfast as uh, in ireland as they are over here but people forget that those are the safe limits they're not that's not the recommended limits 15 units a week is the it's not well th yeah that's fine if you drink that that's recommended as being anything over and above that becomes unsafe drinking and I think people get people think fifteen units. Are you kidding? I do that in I do that before breakfast. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, and it does feel like a because it's like basically a glass of wine a night. And yeah. people think, well, that's just ridiculous, you know. And yet we have more people dying of alcohol-related uh, illnesses directly alcohol-related than any other country in Europe. I'm sure you'd actually find people more likely to read the sugar content or the various ingredients of things that they eat and mm -hmm. be concerned with that than they would about the units of alcohol that they're consuming. Well, that is partly played by the fact that the alcohol industry are forced to put on the units, but they are not, they put it as small as they possibly can get away with. And then even smaller, it will say, please drink carefully. We could have a whole other very lengthy discussion about this and I'm sure we probably will have you back again, Chip. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners did too. If they want to hear more from you, they can absolutely subscribe to Soberful or to Big Fish and Chip for more podcasts, uh, Chip. And then there's also chipsummers.com to learn more about your work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.